0: Welcome to Lost Anchorage, where CRUDE investigates the mechanisms of crime and violence in Anchorage, Alaska. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. Through research and interviews with professionals, law enforcement, and those affected by crime, I hope to build a better understanding of whether or not Anchorage is, in fact, becoming more dangerous. By the end of this series, I hope to create a portrait of crime in our city, for better or for worse.
1: My name's Joe Ramber, and um, I wanted to talk to you today about and tell my story. About my life, uh, a lot of uh, alcohol abuse and drug abuse in my life, and uh, how I got sober, and hopefully it'll help someone else get sober and stay alive. So this is completely
0: transparent to listeners. We know each other, and you contacted me because you were interested in talking with me about your experience with drug abuse, correct? Yes, sir. Where does that story start?
1: For me, it starts when I was a kid. In what way? Um... Well, when I, you know, growing up, I was the, the baby of the family of, like, uh, seven total kids, I think it was. And I was the runt. So, um, I always felt weird as a little kid, man. I felt like I never fit in. Just being the runt with older brothers and older, older siblings, I was always, you know, kind of left behind. And, and I was also spoiled by my parents more. So, it was just kind of, I was treated differently. I it was, it was a different kid.
0: And how was your
1: home life home life is great uh i was you know raised by two wonderful parents uh my dad drank back in the day but it never affected me negatively he was always a happy drinker um mom was a sweetheart you know raised us right she grew up on a homestead in anchor point so you know she was old school and you know my brothers were great too and you know we we raced motocross we did everything outside just like normal kids back in the 90s you know like back in the day when life was Life was good, you know, before all this technology bullshit came in.
0: (laughs) What I was getting to when I asked, you know, where does your story start? I know you're a part of a program. When you tell your story of drug abuse and alcohol abuse, where does that story start?
1: That story starts when I was about... I'd like to say I take my first drink when I was about 13 in Dallas, Oregon at my my half-brother's wedding. And uh, me and my brothers were driving around in this rental van, getting ready to head to his wedding. And uh, they decided to stop by the liquor store and got like a 12-pack of some cheap-ass liquor, you know, some Natty Ice or something, you know? (laughs) And uh, I remember... Taking, having a few beers, you know, getting that warm, cozy feeling, you know, thinking I was cool, drinking with my brothers. And then when we got to the wedding, the next thing you know, I was sneaking in the bathroom, taking the beers in the bathroom, just chugging them. And uh, they had a big wedding cake there. And uh, before the wedding started, I went up and I smacked the cake because there was a bee on it and just smacked it and smashed it all over the place. You know, I browned out. I don't even remember most of it, dude. Just 13 year old little drunk kid. And everybody was just laughing, you know, like, ah, little did they know that was the start of (laughs) something bigger, you know?
0: Have you reflected on that, that first time that you, you got drunk and thought about how maybe people reacted to it?
1: Uh, I think a lot of people do that. You'll see, you know, when some kid picks up a beer bottle with the bottom of it, you know, a little bit of beer in it and they chug it, chug it and, or You know, sometimes, especially back in the day, parents leave drinks out and like a little kid will grab and take a swig of it, you know, and everybody just laughs. But, you know, someday in the future, there might be some some guy, some grown man's story where he took his first drink. It's kind of crazy to think about that,
0: because I think that those those first drinks or those first, you know, uh, hits of weed or or whatever, you know, I, I don't know if I necessarily subscribe to the gateway mentality gateway drug mentality but i think that your relationship the universal you not you specifically but your relationship or our relationship with those first times will help that trajectory in one way or another positive or negative
1: yeah yeah no that's 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 true um but for me one of the main things that that really stuck with me was the first time i You know, when I was 14 and I had opiates, that's what really, uh, that's where things really hit me when I was a kid and I didn't know what it was, but that I got that feeling of like, I really, 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 really like this. Mm -hmm. And that's where I remember that like it was yesterday. So that was a weird moment. Were you taking them recreationally? So I remember a long time ago, my brother, he, uh. Got hurt, and he had some painkillers, you know. He was taking them like a normal person, prescribed, you know, like yeah. one or two, like a, you know, a normal person. And uh call them normies. And he uh, <laughs> got all weird and loopy, and I remember watching him. He was just giggling. He couldn't stop laughing. I was like, that looks like so much fun. So when I was 14 on Christmas Eve, I found a bottle of uh, liquid Vicodin in my parents' cl- uh, pantry, and I chugged like almost three quarters of it, dude. And I got so fucking high. <laughs> I was itching so bad. I was just so dipped out. And I remember I stayed up all night because I was so high. I don't sleep when I do opiates. It like wakes me up. So I just sat there all night enjoying that feeling. And I remember how warm and like great it was. And everybody woke up for Christmas. And I was like out there acting like I was up early looking at presents, you know, but I was totally, you know, my parents thought it was like, oh, Joe's, you know, weird today. But I was just high as a kite, happy as could be. Yeah. Yeah. So I never forgot that feeling. Did you continue trying to find opiates
0: or did you at a later age kind of revisit that?
1: Definitely revisit it later. Uh, you know, once I got 14, 15, that's when I started drinking with the boys, you know, as teenagers do. And uh, going into high school, you know, I was, I was still a runt and I was a late bloomer as far as puberty goes. So that that really screwed me up because I, I was so insecure and I hated being around other people because there was a lot of dickheads in high school. I'm still friends with those guys now, but some, <laughs> you, you probably know some of them. And, uh, you know, they gave me shit about it and, it, you know, it was out of my control. So what I would do is in order to deal with that, I would black out. I would get drunk. And, uh, and another way I would deal with that is I would uh, turn into a bully myself. That way I would take the attention off of me and I'd bully other kids in school. That way, you know, no one would pick on me. It was weird. It's screwed up, but that's how it was.
0: Overcompensating. Overcompensating.
1: Yeah. And uh, that's that's the main part where drinking came in, like going to parties and stuff. I was so terrified. And there was always assholes there that I knew were going to mess with, even though I had older brothers, you know, stick up for me and older friends. But there was always those dickheads that would say something. And uh, I was terrified of chicks, you know, so... I would just black out and get crazy, just a crazy little shit, you know, and then people would just leave me alone. (laughs) Yeah. Like
0: stay away from him. Yeah. He's weird. (laughs) He's crazy. (laughs) So let's get to you revisiting opiates. Did you revisit
1: them as pills or did you revisit them as something else? I revisited them as painkillers, 10 milligram Percocets. I had a script for 90 of them. I hurt my shoulder. Because uh, I used to train a lot more and do MMA and stuff. And between that and plumbing, I hurt my shoulder. And they, uh, the doctors back then didn't give you physical therapy or anything. You know, They just gave you a script. And I got a script. And I remember I was just like, oh, yes, this is great. But that wasn't – that was like – okay, sorry, I got to backtrack. That was like when it really started. But I was at Arctic Man one year. And uh, one of my buddies that came with us up there – You know, we all usually just drank up there and did some cocaine, Mm -hmm. like normal people. (laughs) And he uh, brought some heroin. I remember I was blacked out. I walked in the motorhome and I saw him smoking heroin. And I remember that feeling from that drinking that liquid Vicodin, dude. And I was like, oh, that'll make me feel good. I did it, dude. I got so dipped out. And I remember I was wearing a one-piece snowsuit and a hot, open-faced hockey helmet. And there was these girls that camped next to us, these hot chicks. And they thought I was literally, they thought I was mentally retarded. They really did. They told all Are my buddies. Kidding? Yeah. They're like, I ah, telling my buddies, this is really cool that you brought your friend up here, you know, your special friend, and brought him to Arctic Man. And and you know, the next day they saw me walk into camp and they were like, What the fuck? I was like a normal dude, all you know, yeah, dressed yeah. normal and stuff. They're like, What the fuck? I was like, Yeah, what? Like, <laughs> what happened? What'd I do? And so you freebased it. Yes.
0: Before you said you you had to backtrack. Yeah. Now let's go
1: forward. Okay. Now we go forward. Sorry, my timeline's all screwed up. A lot of drugs. Um, so eventually, you know, I get to that point where I go see the doctor, I get that script and then they, uh, then I start eating those like candy, you know, and then this time I'm in the plumber's union. I'm a, you know, been doing it for like three or four years and every day just eating those things like they're candy. And then eventually, you know, my tolerance built up and you start burning through that script pretty quick. And after a few months, the doctors are like, all right, dude, we know what's going on here. This isn't right. You, uh, we got to cut you back to five milligrams. And then that, once that happened, it was like, all right, these are gone in like two weeks, you know, because, yeah, it was bad. So once that happened, that's where I uh, I dipped back into the, the hard shit, the, the heroin.
0: And you were continuing to freebase.
1: Oh, yeah. I was always a freebaser. I never put a needle in my arm. Ever? Never. Okay. I always knew not to do that because I saw what it did to other guys. And I wanted to prolong my drug use for as long as I can. Because if you notice, people that use needles, they, uh, their, their rock bottom comes a lot quicker. And how did you go about buying it? Uh, I remember that dude from Arctic Man. They got me high and I called him up and it was so awkward. I felt so awkward because my whole life I talked down to everyone that did oxys and all that shit in high school. You know, I judged them, you know, and, uh, here I am, that same guy asking for that same shit, and I, I asked him. I was like, uh, "Hey man, you got any of that that stuff from that one time? You know, you know, like super like nervous about it." He's like, "Yeah, come on over," you know, like not knowing that I was doing him a favor. You know, yeah, because usually you buy drugs from people and they want to smoke them with you.
0: After you bought it, when you were consistently buying it where would you usually do it? Did you have a specific place or did you just do it anywhere?
1: Dude, at first it was like, you know, I want to do it at someone's house or at my house, you know, and cause I got really high at first for a while. And, uh, I would usually end up back at my place and getting high there with my roommate. Cause, uh, he started doing it too. That's kind of why we moved in together. And, um, once that happened, that's, that's where it really took off. And it eventually ended up me doing it everywhere in this fucking town. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, I, it was more of a game to me, like where I could get high and get away with it. In yeah. what way? Uh, so sometimes the drugs aren't enough, you know, like buying drugs, like meeting the dealer, like that's a rush. Like, so you get bubble guts on the way of the dealer, you know, cause you, you get excited and you want, you almost have to pull them or take a shit sometimes. And, uh, you know that that uh, that excitement of sneaking drugs into job sites and buildings and airports and because I had clearance for a lot of places. Oh, there's places out on base that I, you know, got away with it, and uh, I would get high in those places, and no one would ever catch me. And I that 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 rush from that alone just like made it more exciting, made it funner, because it gets to a point where the drugs aren't doing it more, mm-hmm. doing it anymore. So. And did you tell people about this, like after you did it, or was it like a no, personal secret? Nobody knew for a long time, dude. I prolonged it. I was a chameleon, uh-huh. a long time, a manipulator and a chameleon. How often were you doing this? At first it was a couple times a day, and then it just turned into, you know, it was like having breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Basically, you needed it to, to survive, to get through the day. It was a, it was a maintenance program.
0: So when you think about your time doing drugs before you got clean, what stories come to mind
1: when I think about it yeah I mean uh, alcohol is involved in this a lot too because uh, alcohol is my ba- my main I figured that out now I know that alcohol was my main problem because it was always there for me I always left it on the on the back burner like oh alcohol's not my problem you know I don't need to treat that. Cause i went to four different treatments um and like a lot of it was anywhere i went i'd go out to my buddy's cabin you know out of alexander creek and i would detox out there but i'd still drink you mm-hmm. know i'd make them think that it was okay for me to drink the heroin and meth and ambien and everything else i was doing was normal or you know was bad and the alcohol was fine so eventually we would black out out there and i remember <laughs> I remember one time we were driving up the creek in the boat and I had the 22 in my lap and he was driving. He was blacked out and we hit a sandbar going full speed and bucked me off the front of the boat, dude. And he straight up just ran me over with a bolt. And I remember uh, he was up on the bank, all the way up on the bank. And I got up and we were both laughing so hard, not even caring. Like, dude, the boat just crushed me. Yeah. But I was blacked out just laughing about it, dude. My gun was bullets. All my shit was string out in the river and. I remember that next morning I woke up, dude, I couldn't even move. I was just like, oh, my God, in so much pain. And uh, it was like that every time out there. And, I, I, you know, I got some amends to make to that friend. But, you know, we, we're friends now again. That's good. But we uh, I went out there once, man, and I lied to him. I brought some meth, and I brought my script for Ambien out there. And we got some Johnny Walker, and they all went to bed. And I decided to stay up and uh, smoke a bunch of meth. While I'm detoxing, you know, off mm-hmm. opiates, like that was the problem. And uh, ate a bunch of Ambien, you know, and drank about a half a bottle of Johnny Walker. And I went, I lost my mind. I thought National Ge- Geographic was out there filming me on the river. And I was taking his boat and his dog and driving up down the river while he slept in because he was hung over. Uh-huh. And uh, all the people out there that have cabins out there were like, like, what the fuck is wrong with this dude? Because I thought literally I could see people talking to me in camo suits in the woods filming me. And it was terrifying when I found out that that wasn't real. Like he almost sent me home on a plane. It, yeah. That's that's how it was every time. What do you think after that situation? Were you like, I need to slow
0: down or that was a fun vacation or a fun weekend?
1: I thought I need to get the fuck out of here and get back home so I can get some dope. Really? Yep. Yep. Because it was just more guilt and shame piled on. The only thing you want to do when that guilt and shame hits you is you want to get high and numb that pain.
0: At any point, were you under the impression that you were stronger than addiction, that you could just quit anytime you wanted?
1: Oh, yeah. My ego always put me in that that mindset, and that's the problem. I always thought, you know, um, I go to, you know, these four different treatments every time I get an OUI, because I got a couple of those, and uh, I go to a treatment, I would uh, think, you know, get out of there. Like, yeah, I got this. I got this. I don't need to go to, you know, these work a program. I don't need to do these steps. I don't need to do what they tell me to do. And I would, uh, I, Oh, absolutely relapse. But I think that was just my, my addiction telling me my alcoholism telling me that, you know, you're not going anywhere. Like I'm in charge basically. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Was there a moment or a point when you realized, Holy shit, like I'm addicted.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I was living with that, that roommate, I remember when I woke up, and i was absolutely withdrawing you know once you start withdrawing i remember like i felt like it was cool to like be withdrawing like wow i reached this point like what the fuck? you know that mindset and once that obsession kick in that obsession to get high like i that's that's when i knew there was nothing there was no family there was no nieces there was no there was no friends you know there was nothing no job no cops No law. There was nothing that could stop me from getting high. You know what I just thought of is we
0: started this off talking about your high school experience and why you gravitated toward alcohol and then eventually was introduced to opiates. Um, And it seems like there is a consistency with behavior, right? Like even the way that you use it to mask a certain feeling or a perceived inadequacy.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes. No, because that's how it was in the bar scene in my twenties before the opiates took over. It was every weekend blacked out downtown. Cause once I grew, hit puberty and I grew, my main goal was to show everyone that I wasn't that little runt anymore. I had a point to prove I was still insecure as fuck. I still kept all those insecurities. Now I'm just a full grown asshole douchebag that would, bang every single chick I could, fight with anyone I could. I was the kind of guy that would do a mangina downtown in front of a group of people. And then when they gave me shit about it, I would beat them up. And can you explain what a mangina is? (laughs) It's when I pull my pants down and I tuck my wiener between my legs and then I smack it like a stripper. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I had problems, bro. It happened a lot too. (laughs) We're talking probably like almost every weekend when I blacked out, I didn't care. Because I knew it disrupted people. I knew it pissed them off. Yeah. I was always, I like bringing my girlfriends downtown because I knew some guy was going to grab their ass and I had a reason to beat the shit out of them and it would make me feel better about myself. And then people wouldn't see me as that little runt anymore.
0: So right before we got in here in the studio, you were saying that a lot of your friends and family are going to listen to this because you are going to talk about some stuff that they had no idea was going on what was that stuff
1: oh man they didn't know anything you know for a long time they knew something was up but i it got to the point where i was stealing i always kept my job though always kept my job but i would put my family through hell i would steal guns from my dad i'd put them in pawn and then you know the the good little good that was left in me i'd put them in pawn like i was going to get them out that week you know i wouldn't sell them to the guys Can you explain that? You'd pawn them, but. You, you know, you pawn them and you can get them out like a week or two or whatever. Like they'd hold on to them. Yeah. Like it was a loan. I see. With a bunch of interest. And, you know, and it got to the point where, you know, you would never, you'd never go back and get them out. You just, you know, wishful thinking. And it never happened. And, uh, you know, I'd steal money from my mom's purse. And, you know, they know about all that now. And, you know, when the time comes, I'm going to make the amends to them properly and do what I got to do. But it was stuff like that bad constantly and girlfriends too man a lot of manipulation in my life my about the last 15 years of my life was manipulation about actually about 12 manipulation of people how long have you been sober uh i got nine months coming up in like nine days i think and
0: how long have you been comfortable being this honest about it
1: uh about nine months. <laughs>
0: okay, so <laughs> from know. the jump.
1: From the jump. This last go around is what changed me, man. Changed my whole perspective on things. I did a lot to do that, so I did a lot of things to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. After this last go
0: around, what did you mean by that?
1: So, you know, they always say you gotta hit rock bottom before you can start working a program or actually be successful, you know. And uh for me you know, the way I was doing drugs, uh, the way I manipulated people, I was able to prolong it for so long, you know, with my, my OUIs, my DUI. Um, and you know, have my parents build me out of those situations. I never learned. I always knew they would be there to get me out of the situation. Cause I was the baby of the family, dude. And I use that to my advantage, full scale. And I always had girlfriends that I knew would, uh, you know, I'd always date girls that I knew would be easy to manipulate. No offense to single moms, but it was usually single moms. And because I knew, you know, I knew it would be harder for them to meet a guy, you know, and I would be Mr. Charming up front. And I always went tanning. So I looked like I was still, you know, a normal dude. I wasn't on dope or I wasn't screwed up. And in those situations, I would, you know, convince them to lend me money. I would steal money from them. Uh, I would convince them after I would lose my license from OUIs and driving with suspended licenses. I had six of those, I think. Six um, OUIs? No, I had six driving with suspended licenses. Oh, okay. I had two OUIs and I had one Dewey that I beat in court. Okay. But uh, I would convince them to let me drive their vehicles, lie to them, say I had my my license and all that stuff, and they would they would let me do it. And, yeah. You know, and they suffered the consequences of that. And I wrecked vehicles. I got OUI in one of their cars and. Just terrible things like that over and over again, dude. It was the insanity of it, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And it happened over and over. I thought I could drive high and it would never work out. Either wreck or I get a cop, pull me over.
0: You mentioned just a minute ago that you were a functioning addict, that you maintained a life and a job throughout your addiction. And why... I was interested in talking to you today is because I think that your story is an important one because it's representative of the modern day common addict. Uh I think that as a society, we tend to think a drug addict is someone who is visibly strung out or tweaking on the side of the road uh, when the reality is that an addict is a lot closer or that the addict is a lot closer to home than you think.
1: Yeah, no that's 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 what I, I want to talk about too is you know there's always telltale signs and I was very functioning I always did things to make to reassure people that I was doing good my buddies knew they knew something was up you know I was the guy that got up to go to the bathroom when we paid the bill after snow machine in at chair five or whatever it was and you know I'd always disappear so because I, I didn't have the money I want to save my money to go get high and uh I prolonged my 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 addiction by being a functioning drug addict. I knew that's how it would work best for me. I always kept my job. I always made sure that I did enough work or more work than my my uh, fellow employees that even if my bosses did know, which they knew, especially at my last company, they, they took care of me. But I, I worked my ass off and they, uh, they knew it. You know, that's what they told me this last go around. When I got sober, they're like, dude, we knew the whole time. But we knew that if we said something, you would just lie through your teeth and you always did good work you always outworked everyone but you know we we knew it had to run its course and i'm so grateful they let me do that
0: when did you start lying to
1: friends family co-workers oh man i remember when i was living in that apartment with that roommate i remember one of my close buddies um asked me one of my good good buddies that i partied with you know we, i lived with him for like four years and uh that was back in my drinking days but once uh he he knew something was up he was like he came over to my place and he was like I remember I was going to the bathroom and it was uh it was weird because he was just like hey man he's like Joe are you are you doing heroin I was like what no I was like who told you that he's like oh I don't know and it was in front of my other three buddies and I remember that the my heart dropped when I heard that because I was so disgusted with myself because I remember how much shit I gave people for being junkies and I was that guy now and I was like oh my god I might got that blood pressure one up. And then after that point, I just wanted them to go home so I could get high.
0: At what point did you start tanning to kind of cover (laughs) up those symptoms, those visible symptoms? Fucking
1: tannest Man in Alaska. Uh, (laughs) I uh my buddy owns a tanning salon and he sponsored me when I was, you know, back in the MMA days when I fought my one fight. And uh but he sponsored me and I ended up doing a lot of his plumbing there and I always trade out minutes and uh you know. That was in my 20s, early 20s. And uh, I always did it for a while until the last like four years. I didn't give a fuck what anybody thought. Once I knew everybody knew, that's when I just didn't give a shit. You know, you can only go to so many parking lots and have so many drug deals without tell someone, you know, someone's going to see you. It's a small city. Super small. Yeah. And I wasn't your conventional drug addict either. I didn't go around stealing cars. I wasn't out stealing shit like that the only people I screwed over in my life were my close friends and my parent my family I never did that you know I wasn't that kind of a junkie I always did my my work I always had my job I always did side jobs I always did what I had to do to get high and still try to look like a good Samaritan <laughs> you know a responsible citizen. I feel like your situation, like I
0: said earlier, is is pretty common. Like there are a lot of people in the workforce who are doing exactly what you were doing.
1: Mm-hmm. But no one knows. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of them. I see it now more than ever. Now I'm like, once you're on both sides of the fence, you can see this shit from a mile away. So I I I can see it all the time, even even if it's not drugs. I just see it signs of it little little things you know and uh like what uh little lies or you can always tell when someone disappears for a period of time why they're disappearing how many times a day because that was my gig I go to the outhouse for 30 minutes at a time and get dipped out in there and come back and work my ass off and it was like that all day and uh you can just tell when someone comes late when they miss work a lot when they have the same excuse you can only be sick so much in one time in and mo- you know for during a month, you know, that was my gig. Mondays were the worst.
0: So working this program that you've been working, how have you learned to understand the, the journey that you've gone through?
1: Well, the whole point of it is to, you know, find your, basically you, you point out your own flaws and the place I went to in California, my last treatment, Uh, They taught me how to kind of rewire my brain and have a different perspective on things. And uh, in doing so, you know, gave me a good base to work off of. When I came back here and started working my program, um, you know, I found out what my problem was. I found out why that, you know, why I did the shit I did before, why I was insecure, you know. And uh, I got to the root of that. And you slowly just keep figuring more out about yourself. And then as you figure out these problems in your life, why, you know, your flaws, you work on them one by one. And that's kind of like the steps that I take in my program. That's what they're designed to do.
0: What do you think was one of the most important
1: flaws for you to face head on? Fear. Fear. Absolutely, dude. That's what I figured out. With fear, pride, ego, all that crap, but it all stems from fear. Fear of being alone. That's why I always had a girlfriend. Uh, fear of uh, rejection, you know, fear of of everybody's thoughts about me. It was all fear. Yeah. For me. To each their own though. Everybody's different.
0: Mm-hmm. And by facing that, you overcame it.
1: I wouldn't say I've overcome it, but I take the necessary steps every day to keep it in check because mm-hmm. with that fear comes my ego. And once my ego gets involved, it's downhill from there because my ego is a beast and it will control me and it'll push me right back into that life.
0: You know, as I've, as I've gotten older, I've realized that the more we know about ourselves, the more self-analysis that we have, the And it's not easy, so I don't want to say, but it is easier to get through these difficult things in life, whether it's addiction or whether it is, you know, whatever your vice is. Yeah. Have you noticed that, that the older you get, the more truthful you are with yourself?
1: Now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say so, but I know guys that are way old that are struggling. You know what I mean? It's just everybody. I know guys that are 17 that are sober working a strong program. But for me, it was just, it was desperation, dude. 100% desperation is what got me sober. Rock bottom. And I was, it was death, either suicide or or go to treatment, get my shit together. That was was the only way I didn't think I could live a normal life.
0: Was there any moment when you
1: contemplated suicide oh yeah the last year that i was using it was almost every day i would lay in bed i would say the word out loud suicide whenever i would get a thought of, of embarrassment of guilt and shame about what i was doing i would say that i would say out loud suicide and it's so weird to say now but yeah dude i would think about how i could do it and you know, i never wanted to shoot myself because i didn't want to leave a mess for my family but in the end it was i wanted to hang myself i was going to hang myself that was my plan because I was just done. I didn't, you know. It gets to a point where your addiction is so powerful. It says, uh, "Oh, you can't handle me anymore." Well, you can go kill yourself, and you think that's a, the best alternative. You don't think you can live life anymore without it, mm-hmm. and you can't live with it. You can't live without it, so you're just gonna kill yourself. So this is
0: a question that I've always, I've always wondered because I've, I've never done heroin. Uh, I've never done a lot of recreational opiates, but as you described earlier, you have that initial just like euphoria, right? Mm-hmm. And you're like, I want this feeling forever. Yes. Right. And it kind of gets a hold of you. And there, I feel like, is a tipping point where it stops feeling really great mm-hmm. and you just have to take it because you're essentially addicted. Yes. So you go from that euphoric feeling to the other end of the spectrum. Which is like, I don't even know what that feels like. I mean, I know what I've heard and what I've read, but I don't know
1: by experience. You know something funny about that? The other day, I don't know if it was the 24-hour flu or if I got food poisoning, but I shit my brains out and puked my brains out for 24 hours, and I had the worst body aches, cold sweats, dude. And I sat on my couch, and I had that that desperate feeling I got before when I was hours before I plan on hanging myself. And it, it depressed me a little bit because I was sitting in that same, just sitting there slouched, like didn't know what to do. Detoxing. It's exactly what it felt like, dude. And it was so brutal. It's way worse for people that shoot up. But when you smoke heroin and abuse your body for that long, uh, your, your body hates you and you get the sunken in eyes, the pale skin, the droopy, sad face, man. And you're just, you don't want to do anything. You stop taking care of yourself. It's, it sucks.
0: And so that just brought you right back to that.
1: It brought me back to that. It reminded me, it was crazy. It was like a keen reminder of like, Hey, if you take one drink, if I have one glass of wine, I'm like, I always tell everybody I joke around. I'll be turning tricks on Spinard. You know, I'll be, (laughs) I'll be out there getting high. I'll be going straight to my dealer. Yeah. It's, it's, it's that quick in my brain it takes that little buzz, just boom, triggers it. Boom. I'm good. I can, I'm going to get high. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's terrible.
0: So every day is a struggle.
1: Every day is a struggle. If I'm not doing, not working my program. Yeah. It's not anymore. Like I don't have that obsession anymore. And at first I did in the first 90 days or so, but, but I had a, you know, a person I call and I talk to him and I say a prayer, even though I'm not a God person, I have a higher power that's way more powerful than me. And it's the best thing that ever happened to me, but that's what you got to do. You got to do, I stopped listening to myself because clearly what's in between my ears is not working properly. Mm -hmm. And, uh, those, uh, you know, there's other people out there that have been through what I have and they have plenty of sober time and they know what they're doing.
0: Was there a point in your sobriety where you were like, I'm doing this or I'm doing this and I'm doing it well and I'm going to continue doing this because I imagine there are there is a point in in anyone's sobriety where you're like, all right, day one, hour one, and you're having doubts, can I do this? But was it, you know, a week in, a month in, two months in, where you're like, okay, I'm doing this. I have a routine that's outside of that drug routine.
1: Well, for me. It's kind of weird, like, kind of when I, I decided to go to this treatment, like when I called my parents and told them, well, my dad called me, thank God. It was random how that worked out because I was going to hang myself. Um, But that's kind of like once I, I got in his truck and he told me what would happen, you know, if I killed myself that my mom couldn't handle it.
0: And, and that, you just told your dad.
1: Yeah, because he called me. Okay, so this is what happened. I went on a bender, right? My roommate works up on the slope at this time, and he was gone. And I, uh, you know, had my buddy over, my dealer buddy. And, you know, I had a script of Xanny's I bought from my other buddy, some Xanny bars, like 60 of them. And I remember I ate like 12 that day. And uh, that's a lot of Xanax. And uh, and uh, I came out of this four-day coma, and I was out of money, out of drugs. And that's when the rock bottom hit, dude. And I punched some holes in the wall. And I was literally—I had a rope. I was going to go out where I walked my foster dogs, and I was going to hang myself. And my, I opened the door, and it, we had—it was one of it was a warm spring, and I was like, "All right, open the door." And uh, we had a fresh six inches of snow that morning. And I remember I opened it; and I was all detoxing and cold, and I was like, "Nope, shut the fucking door," because it was too cold. Too cold. I was too much of a pussy. And my dad called me right then, and it was so weird because I got in his truck when he—I told him what was going on. Where he came pick me up he's he just told me, man, he's like, dude, like, you can't do that. Like, cause you're so selfish in that state of mind. You don't mm-hmm. think about anybody else. It's all me, 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 poor me, 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 me. I'm going to kill myself. You know, you don't think about how it's going to affect anyone else.
0: Do you ever think now how it would have affected
1: oh, other people? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I see it every day you know i go over every sunday and watch football with my dad my mm-hmm. dad's in the hospital he, you know i told you earlier he just had open heart surgery and and uh you know just going there and seeing him you know just it makes his day and christmas this christmas you know i told him you know they gave me a hundred bucks <laughs> and i'm like why'd you guys give this to me i should just <laughs> give it right back to dad i'm gonna be paying you guys out for the rest of my life you know um and i was like i didn't get you guys anything i just got my niece you know we only just buy our niece my niece things basically now Mm -hmm. and my parents like dude they're like the best gift you ever gave us was sobriety is is this version of you they're like we've never been this happy with you in our entire lives like this is they've never seen i've never seen this person before so they're like meeting this whole new person and this version of me is wonderful as far as i know you know I, i love this version of me
0: you know, what's really great about you saying that is my brother, Derek, mm-hmm. was big alcoholic oh, for yeah. a long time. And how I describe him, and I, I don't even know the first time that I said it, I don't remember, but it just came completely just out of my mouth. And I, I was describing him to somebody who hadn't seen him in a while, and he had been sober for a couple years at this point. And I'm like, he's, he's the best version of himself. And- you know, it it really is amazing to have that person again, because I think that when I think of him at his worst, the reason that he was able to be at his worst is because people remember him at his best. Mm -hmm. And so they want, you know, that he had this kind of Jekyll and Hyde thing going on, right? Where he's still an amazing person, but then once that addiction kind of got hold of him, he turned into this like, evil version of himself you know kind of this possessed version of himself yeah. that went against everything that he like every moral and every everything every
1: fiber in his being morals go right out the window dude yeah right out the window and you know for anybody out there that's got a family member or a friend that's struggling that's you know got any time any t- any period of uh sobriety whether it's a day or you know five years just do if you tell them how happy you are for the person they are today. Like you tell them how much you love them and how happy they make you now. Like that goes, that's, that's, that's better than any present in the world. Dude. My parents told me that dude, my heart dropped. Like I was just like, Oh my God. Like it made me so happy. Like Mm -hmm. that was better than anything. You know, that's better than any amount of money. You know, just knowing that their mind is at ease. My mom's not going to be up every night worrying about me. My dad doesn't have to hide his fucking Ambien. You know, he doesn't have to lock his gun door. Mom doesn't have to hide her purse anymore. Like that's, that right there is worth anything in the world to me.
0: Absolutely. Totally. And and to be clear, my brother has been sober for, I mean, something like eight or 10 years now. It's awesome. You know, he's got two beautiful girls, an amazing wife. And so I guess all that to say, kind of in conjunction with what you're saying is like you, you can be at your lowest and that seems so far away and it's not as far away as you think.
1: Not at all, dude. Not at all. Like I still, you know, get laggy and, you know, fatigue, you know, it's going to be like that for a little while. You know, I did a lot of damage to this body and, uh, but that's nothing. It doesn't even bother me anymore. It's my mind. That's, that's right. That's what all I have to I have to remember that. Like my body can be whatever it is, man, but as long as my mind is right, I'm this person. I'll always be this person as long as I do what I got to do. And, uh, it's all what's in between your years, man, how your, how your brain's working. So right now here in Alaska, it is, it's dark. We're
0: like in the heart of, of the darkness, the, the dark months. What do you do when the depression starts setting in?
1: I surround myself with positive people, other people that are just like me. Um, you know, whether, you know, even if you're not an alcoholic or an addict, you know, go join a club, go, go do something, go to a gym, do jitsu, do boxing, whatever you got to do, go join a fat tire bike club, whatever you got to do, just, you know, and, and remove those negative people that are in your life. Cause those people that you're with that try to bring you down, that are miserable, they're going to bring you just down, right down to your level. Cause they, they want misery loves company. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's just, that's just how it is. I, I try to find the positive in every situation. That's how I do it. Like when I go on walks with my dog, it's, uh, it's, you know, yeah, it's 10 below, but you know what, like, you're not going to see this beautiful trees and all these crystallized trees and this beauty, you know, these clear, crazy skies and Northern Mm -hmm. lights, unless you get outside, like without this cold. So you gotta find the, even if it's the smallest positive thing, you gotta find that positive. And focus on that and remove the negative. Because if you harp on that negative, it's gonna fester, it's gonna build and it's gonna eat you up.
0: The other day when we were on the phone, you were talking
1: about volunteering. That's something that you do now. Dude, yes. It's one of my biggest you know, uh, you know, a lot of people work in their program, on their program, they do they only work with other people. In their program. And, uh, for me, that's not how it has to be for me. It's different. I need more. I have to stay busy all the time. That's another way I deal with this cold. I'm busy all the time. Um, you know, I, I volunteer serving ice cream, as you know, to some of the old folks Mm -hmm. at a, a retirement home, assisted living home. And, uh, and I also, you know, I foster dogs. I do the No One Dies Alone program at Providence. I do stuff like that, and uh, it keeps me out of my head. And as long as I stay busy, I'm fine. Like I do Muay Thai at Legacy Jiu-Jitsu. I you know, have a dog that's very hyper and forces me to get out of the house to go walk him every day. And by the time my day is over with, between that and the program that I work, um, I only have like an hour or two at night to wind down, watch some TV, eat some food and go to bed. And that's, you know, don't, don't sit at home on the couch by yourself and binge watch shit. If you're in my situation, cause all you do is get in your head and you mm-hmm. get depressed real quick and your laundry starts piling up, your house starts getting messy. You know, you don't take your trash out and you start being procrastinating really bad. And you know, that brings you back to that addict life, that alcoholic, alcoholic life. Cause you're surrounded by all this and it's just the same, dude. It's identical. It's still that way of thinking. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. You can be an al- addict or an alcoholic without using, you know, like those thoughts come back. It's still going to fuck you up bad.
0: You know, what I've always thought about addicts or alcoholics is that mm-hmm. they are at their core workaholics Right, so if they are going to be a drug addict, they're going to be one hell of a drug addict. Yes,
1: dude, 100%.
0: And if they're going to be sober, if they really put their mind to it, they're going to be one hell of a sober person. Or if they're going to be a plumber or a writer or, you know, whatever, right? They're going to dedicate their entire self to that thing.
1: Mm -hmm. 100%. That's exactly how it worked for me. Um, I was a magnificent drug addict, you know. I I was really good at being a drug addict for doing it that long, you know, you know, that was, uh, that was a long time to be doing smoking heroin, like 12 years, you know, to be stuck in that life and still function, still have a job, you know, I was in a union. So it was, it was crazy. I just knew how to prolong it. And, uh, you know, now it's like I can focus all my attention on positive things. Even if it's not work, you do other positive things like volunteering, or if you start making the next right decision, Just keep making those decisions, do it the right way, keep making that decision, everything just falls into place. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's weird when you're not a piece of shit, you know, things work out really well. I recently read this book called Unfuck
0: Yourself. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. It's a self-help book and there is this concept in the book that is original as far as I know to the author and that is that... Nobody is really failing at life. They are winning at the life that they chose. So if you are say a car thief, thats right? Good. I
1: like that. If you are if you're a
0: car thief or a drug addict or whatever like you're winning, you know, you're winning at that life, that's but true. do you want to win at that life? Does that life make you feel good? That's so
1: true, dude. That is so true. That's a good that's a good concept. Like I like that. Yeah. Oh ah, wow.
0: It was funny because
1: it's one of those things where I read it
0: and didn't think anything of it. And then a couple of days later I realized, wow, I'm still thinking of this thing. That's good. I need to write that down. <laughs> one thing I, I wrote down here that I thought was interesting is that you are volunteering at the assisted living home mm-hmm. and you are also doing the the program where, you know, nobody dies alone. Yeah. So you're gravitating toward elderly people.
1: Yeah. Have you picked up on this? Oh, yeah. I think I know why. Why? Well, for me, you know, seeing how my fear of being alone is one of my biggest things, I still don't see myself getting married at this point and having kids. Maybe one day, but, you know, what if I'm not, what if that's just not me? And I do end up alone one day. I don't want, you know, I hope some little shithead comes in and serves me ice cream one day uh you know i hope if i'm dying alone there's someone sitting at my bedside so i don't have to sit there just by myself with my own thoughts you know Mm -hmm. like i just put myself in their shoes you never know what can happen so i whenever i do anything like that i just put myself like what are they thinking what are they going through that's why i don't judge people anymore well for the most part you know (laughs) <laughs> working on that but i you know I, I try to put myself in someone freaks out or you know at work or wherever i just try to think like where did they come from mm-hmm. what's going on at their house to make mac like this instead of being like fuck that guy idiot blah 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 that's how i was before i'll beat the shit out of him that was always my answer and you know now i changed my way of thinking i had to because it's just that negativity eats me up man
0: are you actively trying to be the opposite of the person you were before?
1: I'm not even trying. Just working the steps that I am and, and changing my way of thinking, it just it automatically changed me.
0: And just being receptive to those steps.
1: Yes, absolutely, 100%. It changed me 100%, dude. I'm not – like I said, I've never been this person before. Even when I was back in the day when I was just partying or whatever, drinking beer in my teens, I was, I was never this person. So I don't know <laughs> – I don't quite know how to deal with them yet. Mm -hmm. I know how to deal with them. I just try to push it on other people. I realize that if I am happy, smiling, and, you know, I don't bitch about things that are pointless to bitch about. Like, you know, people stress out about the dumbest shit right now. Like, things that they cannot control. That's what I do. I just focus on the things that I can control. Mm -hmm. If I can't, it's just, it is what it is. Like, my dad being in the hospital, you know. One of my brothers was stressing out really bad. And, you know, I, I just, the way I think about it is it's out of our hands, dude. It's not in our hands. Mm-hmm. It's it's in doctor's hands. For me, it's in my higher power's hands. That's what I had to do. I had to turn all my will over to my higher power. It totally dictates everything I do now. They do. They're my brothers. So, you know, my brothers that passed away are my higher power. And they, they you know, I believe they're the ones that have watched over me this entire time because I should be dead a thousand times over, dude. Like, I have too many stories to tell you where I should have died. So many stories. And uh, something kept me alive for this long. And there's a reason I'm alive. So I might as well do something with it and help other people.
0: And your brothers being a higher power, is that kind of like a an inner voice or an inner monologue?
1: Okay. So I can tell you that whole story about how that happened if you want real quick. Yeah. So after that whole thing you know my last go around wanted to hang myself yada 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 um i ended up googling a treatment facility in california because i just wanted to go somewhere i knew my insurance would pay for it you know so i uh, ended up going down to california and la and staying at this six bedroom house this facility it had a pool and everything it was great and uh they were really awesome those are the people that taught me how to change my way of thinking I had this amazing uh, this black counselor named daryl i call him brother daryl the coolest dude i've ever met in my life man he's still my good friend today i talk to him every other week and he's uh he took us to this lake called shrine lake in malibu and it was created by this dude called yogananda and he took all the positive quotes and all the positive things from all the main religions and he used to travel the world and You know he knew the president back then and all this stuff and you should look him up sometime he's pretty cool but he built this little lake this natural spring that's in malibu and surrounded it with flowers and ducks and turtles and uh he lived on this houseboat on this lake and built this temple there and at the end of the lake after you walk around it it's super peaceful and relaxing uh me and two other guys from the facility and my counselor uh Daryl we went in there and you know he stood outside and the two guys came inside with me we sat in his temple and you know they got up and left right away but I sat there cuz i was so broken dude i was so done and i, I so surrendered like i just remember when i uh, decided to go to this treatment once i hit rock bottom my shoulders just dropped like dude i could i can almost see it now like i was done like finally i was so happy to hit rock bottom like i was just done and sitting in that temple, man, I closed my eyes, and I uh, had this crazy moment. It wasn't even crazy. It was it was amazing. It, uh, I saw my both my brothers, Mark and Adam, one on each side of me, man. I had my eyes closed, and I could picture myself, almost see myself in between them. And they, uh, you know, one of my biggest fears in my life is that I, you know, could never take care of my dad or my mom. And then that my dad would die before I got sober. And uh, they both just told me that, hey, bro, um, you know, you can't take care of mom and dad unless you take care of yourself first. Uh, just let everything go, focus on yourself. And I remember after this, when this happened, I still had my eyes closed, dude, this this crazy swirl, these needles. I've never felt these kind of needles and goosebumps on my skin in my life, dude. Uh, this, this swirl of energy just came out of me like a little cyclone and I can picture it now and it just I could almost see it with my eyes closed and it left my body and I go—I opened my eyes and I got up dude and I walked out of that temple and Daryl saw me and I was teared up and he goes you alright man? I was like yeah man I was like I told him what happened he's like, he's like my brother congratulations you just had a spiritual awakening I was like holy <laughs> shit dude and he's like a big part of that and ever since that moment dude my I don't know what happened it just I knowing they were there yeah like I knew it the whole time but that like just solidified it for me like I said people struggle with you know they think working a program you have to like you know believe in God and that's not how it is it's a power greater than you a God of your understanding and my God is I don't even know what the universe is dude my higher power is just my brothers and I, I believe they're up there somewhere watching over me and that's that's who i turn to when shit hits fan and it works that's great it's it's a miracle dude i never thought that could happen
0: and had you ever talked to your brothers before
1: so on my mom's side my brother mark he died in a car accident when i was four um i vaguely remember that night I just remember I cried a lot and uh my house was my parents house it was pretty it was devastating and my dad's first son Brian died of leukemia when I was three and I don't remember much about him I have pictures images in my head of him but I can picture his face like when I close my eyes I can picture both of them and and whenever I pray uh you know I I I can picture them. and They're smiling and stuff like that, but it's hard to explain, man. Like, I don't expect people to understand it, you know. I definitely don't because everybody has their own, their different moment, Mm -hmm. you know. So (laughs) it's crazy. It's, it's, yeah.
0: Well, I understand uh, to a degree. My really good friend, Sonny, passed away in 2010. Yeah. And I talk to him all the time. It's awesome. And I learned that from my wife. Um, her dad passed away when she was seven. And she has uh, taught me by example how to
1: deal with grief. Absolutely.
0: And I mean, everybody goes through it differently. Yep. But in my experience, a healthy way or my healthy way has been To continue talking about these people because they're not completely gone. No. You know, they still live in the people, in the influence that they, they have given or how they have influenced other people. Yep. And we can base our own judgments on their better instincts, you know? Yeah. Like Sonny wasn't the most perfect person in the world, but he had a heart of gold. He did. And so, Uh you know. I have a piece of him on me.
1: That's good, dude. Yeah. That's, that's, I mean, you know, buddy Jordan, he died this year and that, that's, that happened three days before I left treatment, dude. I was devastated. I cried all day and you know, I was like. I went to the funeral, me and Carrie did. I was so bummed I couldn't go, but I just looked at it like, holy shit. Like this is no joke, you know, this is no joke. That could have been me easily, you know. And every time I talk to okay, when I walk my dogs, dude, that's what I, when I go out to the woods, the reason I love having foster dogs is for me, this is all a series of things that connect with each other. I walk my dogs and they get me out in the woods. When I'm out in the woods, that's when I have my deepest conversations with my higher power because mm-hmm. it's real. There's nothing out there that's fake. The ground's real. The trees are real. Everything's real. And I go off the beaten path always because there's no people. You know, and that's when I had those conversations with them. And I don't ask for things for myself. I always ask for things for other people. Um, and I always tell them to take care of Jordan. And I tell them to take care of uh, one of my buddies, Dad Strad, who was like my other father, you know, and he passed away from cancer. And 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 I, I don't think they disappear. I just, I just see it as they join my team, like up there, man, like that's how I see it. I don't think people ever truly die. Mm-hmm. I just don't think so.
0: So I think that addiction is not something that affects one part of society or another. Uh, I think that it affects all of
1: us. The ripple effect, man. There's a huge ripple effect.
0: So if someone is listening to this and they're struggling with addiction or trying to get sober, what would you say to them?
1: I would say absolutely they say one day at a time that is 100 percent true i still do it one day at a time everything i do is one day at a time like my dad being in the hospital you know i'm talking to my brother about it and you know he's freaking out I'm like bro you know talking about taking care of all this other stuff i'm like it's he's fine today that's all that matters tomorrow we'll deal with that that's you know you gotta live in the present you can't live in the past because that's going to eat you alive because all the shitty things you did you can't live in the future because you're going to stress out about taking care of these things in the future. You got to live in the present. There's a fine line. You got to walk.
0: To what extent do you regret your addiction? Because without your addiction and without all of those wrongs, you wouldn't be the person you are right now.
1: 100% I don't regret any of it. You know, I don't. people might find that. A little crazy, but I don't, dude. Cause you know what? All those things that I did, all those wrongs I did, all those people I screwed over, now I have the chance to go back and make it up to them and I can make it up in a better way. And now I'm able to help other people that struggled. Cause like you said, if I didn't go through this, I wouldn't be able to help. You know, drugs and alcohol aren't going anywhere. So there's always going to be someone behind me that needs help. And there's no way, you know, I could help anybody unless I went through this and. I try to share my story with everyone even at work random people electricians in like a boiler room i tell them my story and usually like nine times out of ten that person opens up to me because like holy shit, this guy just told me everything about him and they tell me even if it's just like normal life problems you know mm-hmm. that's the best part about working a program dude like you you practice these principles in all your affairs it's not just your alcoholism and everything in that it's it's everything you do and it when you do that you become a different person and the best part of you comes out and that's what you know it's so hard for people to understand they don't know it because they don't experience it yet and that's why you got to surround yourself with these people that have time because you learn that once you see these people and that's why i like telling my story because people see how screwed up i was but they also get to see this version of me the guy that's happy that you know i piss some people off at work because i'm so happy all day and they're just like (laughs) Jesus Christ you're like shut the fuck up like I just can't help it I can't turn it off you know I can dial it back a little bit but I can't turn it off you have a new lease on life 100% I'm on borrowed time as far as I'm concerned like as far as like dying goes I don't care like I I'm on borrowed time man I got away with a lot I'm happy to be here right now I'm happy for today and that's all I worry about is today tomorrow's another day if i die tomorrow that's what it is but today i'm here i'm I'm talking to you so you know who knows what tomorrow's going to bring but i know if i do the next right thing tomorrow's going to be beautiful i always wake up and tell myself that today is the best day of my life because it's 100 true 100
0: lost anchorage is written hosted and produced by me cody liska for crude magazine music is by michelle mclaughlin for more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine thanks to trina duber seward brewing company the grind coffee shop in juno derek adolf blue and gold board shop sharon liska Alaska Surf Adventure, Aquila Space, and Northern Knives for their support at the company man level.